we are at a good point at the book of Galatians. By the time we get done today, we are finishing the third of five of the major divisions of the book. Just to give you a bit of a recap, uh, the first division was in chapter 1, verse 1, and it went up to verse 9, and that's where Paul was setting the tone of what the whole point of the letter was about, and really was, his, the two driving themes was his apostleship and the genuineness of the gospel, and flowing from that is how we live. And then the second section was from chapter 1, verse 10, and took us all the way through to the second chapter, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 21 where Paul went in great detail about the legitimacy, the authenticity of his apostleship. The third section, which we end today, began in chapter 3, verse 1, and ends today in chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul, having established his authority and genuineness as an apostle, launches into arguments and counter-arguments against the false teachers that were saying that you needed to, in a sense, uh, earn or merit your standing before God. And Paul wanted to make it clear in no uncertain terms that the gospel is not another way to earn God's favor by your performance because it's impossible. There's no way to do it. To think you could actually earn God's favor is to actually, uh, is actually belittle the offense that was done against him, right? It is actually to say, I don't think he's really been that offended, so therefore I can make up for it by a few good efforts that misses the, the travesty and the gravity of sin, and the holiness of God's character. So the gospel says, you cannot do it. That's why God did it for you. And our lives are an expression of gratitude for Him. We don't live the way we ought to as Christians as a means to earn our salvation. We are called to live a certain way, and when we study the book of James, that's going to be very clear. But we don't do that to earn His favor. We do that because we love His favor and want to express our gratitude to Him. Very different, right? So after Paul makes his final argument today, chapter 5.1 and really 5.2 into the uh, 6.10 is all, now that you understand this, you Galatians, you get this, you have the proper frame of mind to understand how we then live. Because if we don't understand that, what we're going to do is just take one yoke of do's and don'ts and a metric of reward and behavior and substitute it with another. And Paul says, I don't want that to happen. So you need to get that understanding because then he launches into what is the practical application of the gospel. And then the final section, which is uh, chapter 6, it's only eight verses, is where Paul gives these final warnings and encouragements to the Galatians. Now, when we ended last week, uh, it was at the end of the first half of chapter 4, Paul wanted to make very clear that they were no longer children, they were no longer like household servants, uh, that maturity had now come. They are adopted sons and daughters of God because of what God had done in sending Christ and us exercising faith in His work, in His character, through grace, all of that had brought us into this new wonderful position of being in His family right? We are not these kind of children or slaves that require masters. We're sons and daughters. The problem was uh, the false teachers had come in and deceived them, and so they started to believe that we have to somehow earn God's favor. We have to earn, we have to do certain things to get on God's good side. And what Paul was saying, if that's how you live, then what you're saying is what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient, that there needed to be Jesus on the cross and a couple things you need to do to button up the loose ends. So Jesus' work was insufficient, and his ministry to them was completely in vain. Now, if you've been with us, Paul, throughout Galatians, has given a little bit of autobiography about some of his ministry and message, but in those cases, 
they weren't the actual recording of him planting the church in Galatia. Today, what Alan just read to us, we got some insight into how this church in Galatia was actually founded. It turns out that Paul came to them through an illness. He had some sickness, and it must have been pretty severe. Scholars think it probably could have been some kind of eye fungus. I know that's kind of gross, but there was something very disgusting about his eye, uh, such that he makes a comment, if you could have, you would have taken your own eyes and given it to me. Furthermore, that, that something about the, the disease was disfiguring to him and would have caused revulsion, but they weren't revulsed by him. They, as a matter of fact, loved him and treated him as if he were an angel of God or Jesus himself. So Galatia, the church, started on the best possible footing. I mean, things were going great. God was moving. They were responding to the gospel. The church was flourishing. It was beautiful. But then, as we just heard, things took a turn for the worse. These young Christians, these young converts, not as grounded in God's Word as they could have been, were seduced by false teaching and the false doctrine that they embraced. Friends, false doctrine always distorts relationships. False doctrine always divides, whether it's religious false doctrine like the prosperity gospel or it's irreligious false doctrine like humanism. The false will never embrace, embrace the true, and the true must always expose the false. So we see that, that dynamic happening here in Paul's midst, and it's breaking his heart. He says, why am I now your enemy, verse 15, 16, because I'm telling you the truth. Even though they started off on a great ground, false doctrine had changed things and started to divide them. Paul calls them back to be like he is, but then launches into verses 21 to 31 to combat the very false doctrine that was turning things around. And he gets into probably, actually without argument, the densest argument in the book of Galatians we're going to tackle today. So I'm going to, I'm going to need you to really step up your A game, so to speak, and I'll let you know when we're there, because I want you to dial in to the tight-knit argument that Paul makes. And then finally, in chapter 5, verse 1, in light of what Paul is saying about being, following his example and understanding the Word of God, how should they respond? That, that's the way Paul has laid out this really intricate argument in chapter 4 and into chapter 5. So the, reason we, the, reason this, the way this passage breaks down, grammatically, Paul uses three uh, principal plural imperative verbs. That means these are commands that are actually in the text. Now, if you look at the English, if you know your grammar, you're saying, well, there's a lot of verbs in here. What are you talking about? Remember, the English is a translation. In the original language, there are three imperative verbs that kind of triangulate Paul's argument. The first one is in chapter 4, verse 12. Paul's saying, be like me. Be as I am. Okay? And then in, in chapter 4, verse 21, he's saying, if you want to be like me, the way that happens is you have to understand, you have to know the Scriptures. You have to know what it is to be freed in the gospel. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, the last verb is, in light of those two commands, now stand firm in your faith. So that's the way this passage breaks down. Let me ask God to bless the teaching of His Word, and we're going to jump right into it. <clears throat> Father, we thank You for Your Word is so powerful. Lord, we live in a world where people are being tossed to and fro, not only from their own foolishness, but the foolishness that's so rank in our culture. Father, we thank you that we don't have to depend on the shifting sands of cultural opinion or perspective or wisdom, but that we have the eternal, solid wisdom in your word. 
Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth in this wisdom. More importantly, help us to embrace it and base our lives upon it. Father, we thank you for the way you had worked and righted the ship in Galatia and that those churches continued to flourish for many years. Father, as we pray, as we respond to your word, we continue to flourish for many years. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The great thing about this passage is not only is it doing double duty in Paul defending the core message of the gospel, but as we'll see, as we learn from Paul, we also understand how to minister the gospel in a contemporary context. So we're going to look at them one at a time. I have a bottled water here because our family has been struggling with a cold, so if you excuse me, my voice is kind of going in and out. Let's start verse 12. <clears throat> Brothers, Paul writes, I entreat you, become as I am. I entreat you, become as I am. Paul was a consistent example of Christ-likeness to all the churches. Think with me, and uh, I think I'll have this on the screen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he wrote to them, he said, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul writing to the Galatians saying, become like I am is not new to him. He said the same thing to the Thessalonians. He also wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.16. He said, imitate me. Not just once, in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, imitate me. Now, was Paul hung up on himself? He wanted everyone to be like him. That wasn't it. This was not an ego trip for Paul. He wasn't conceited. Because in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, Paul says, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. You see, Paul would say, imitate me because I am striving with everything within me to be like Christ. Now, the key there is the phrase, striving to be, right? Paul knew very well that he had not arrived. He told the Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, I haven't arrived, but everything within me, I am striving to make every effort to live for Jesus Christ. But specifically, Paul says, imitate me. What what does that look like? What does that exactly look like? Was Paul simply saying you need to be respectful, have a good work ethic as he informed the Thessalonians? Was he simply saying to them, like he said to the Corinthians, that you should learn to suffer persecution? Don't be one so caught up with your own personal rights, but learn to let your rights go aside for the greater good. Was that what Paul was getting at? Now, there there can be some gospel application of those things, couldn't there? Nothing is more counterintuitive and a witness to a culture that's always demanding their rights than someone who simply says, my rights are not that important. There's something greater to live for than my personal rights. That's very counterintuitive in our culture, but I don't think that's exactly what Paul meant. Turn with me, keep your finger in Galatians, and turn with me to the book of Acts to the book of Acts, chapter 26. If you're new to reading your Bible, Acts is a couple of books of the Bible to the left. The book of Acts, chapter 26. 
Book of Acts chapter 26, just keep in mind that the big numbers are the chapter references. The little numbers, they're not footnotes, okay? If you're new to reading your Bible, those little numbers are verse indicators. So chapter 26 and verse 28, that's what we're looking at. This is Luke writing about Paul having an interaction with a Roman king, and this is what happens. Verse 28, and the Agrippa, the king, said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So this is a huge clue of what Paul is saying when he says, imitate me. He's saying, I wish that all people would become as I am. What was Paul referring to? Being free in Christ. He says, I want you to be like me, with the exception of being a prisoner in these chains, but I want you to be free, set free from the real chains, because I'm free in Christ. Paul said the same, similar kinds of things throughout the entire book of Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, I want you to be like me. I I cling to the truth, and I'm not swayed by any other thing. I'm going to hold to the gospel truth. I want you to be like I am. I am dead to the law. I'm dead to this metric of having to prove myself to God and prove myself to others. It doesn't work. I am now alive to God through Jesus Christ. I want you to be like I am. I live by faith and through faith for Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, I want you to be like me, he's saying, I want you to be like me who is freed in Christ. If you are a Christian All of you should be able to say something to that degree, especially to those who don't know Jesus. Namely, that we are so satisfied in Christ, so satisfied in the joy and the forgiveness and the salvation that He gives to us, that we want all people to be like us. Quote John Piper, pastor in Minneapolis, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Oh man, think about that. God is most glorified by us, not when we're doing all these moral righteous actions, not when our church attendance is perfect, not when we give a lot to the tithe bucket when it comes by. None of those things. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Paul says, I want you to be that way. Be like me in this way, completely satisfied in the goodness and love and character of Jesus Christ. Can we say that to those around us? That that is our satisfaction? So the first point is the importance of being a gospel example. The second point which is a means to this first point, is the importance of having gospel examples in our lives. Let me ask you this. Who are you imitating in your life? Who in your life is to you an example of Christ-likeness that is outside of yourself, that, that you are using to aspire towards? Is there somebody in your life like that? Are there people in your life like that? you realize that every one of us in this room is being discipled? We we are being discipled constantly. If not by one another, we are being discipled by the world in every way, in every day, 
The world is trying to disciple us into its values, into its priorities, into its worldview. So what are you using as a counterbalance to offset that discipleship? Are you putting yourself under the discipleship of a local body of Christians? Are you putting yourself under the discipleship of a local church to combat those false values and priorities and worldview that the world's trying to disciple you under? My friends, the, the most formative, the most formative power in the Christian life, apart from what Christ is doing inside of you, will be the discipling community of God's people around God's Word. That's just the reality. Do whatever it takes in your life to bring your life into the fold of what God is doing here at a local church. It doesn't have to be this particular local church, but any local church. If it's a church proclaiming the gospel, do whatever you can to fold your life into that because that is the, the locus of God's redemptive activity on the earth is the local church. Okay, that was the first eight words. We got to move on because we have a lot, of, a lot of words to cover this morning. So he says, become like I am, but notice what he says right after that. Because I became like you. I wouldn't have expected that. Paul says, be like me because I became like you. What are we getting at? See, Paul's writing about gospel ministry here. And what he's discussing is that, that gospel ministry requires a certain level of transparency, doesn't it? Come get to know me. See my life, good, bad, and otherwise. Be a part of what's going on in my life. Know me, my strengths, my weaknesses, and be like me as I'm attempting to be like Jesus. A gospel ministry requires that transparency. But it also requires flexibility as well, right? A ministry that is energized with and by the gospel is flexible and adaptable in everything apart from the gospel. Everything is flexible. Everything's adaptable with the exception of the gospel message. Let me take you to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you have a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is making that point beautifully in 1 Corinthians 9. Verses 20 to 22. Paul writes this, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. And then notice the, the repetition of all here. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul wanted to be infinitely adaptable for the sake of winning people to Christ. Are we the same? Are we willing to be infinitely adaptable? Not, it's not about my preferences. It's not about what I want. I want to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to them. Or are we waiting for people to kind of clean it up before we're going to kind of open up and move towards them? Paul says, I'll do whatever it takes. One of my favorite stories, Chuck Smith, when he first started his ministry in Costa Mesa, a bunch of hippies started showing up. 
It started, and in those of you from that generation, you know you were all dirty and kind of didn't bath that much. The church was getting dirty. And the church board got together and says, what are we going to, we got all these hippies and they're dirty, they're just ruining the carpet. We just put in the new carpet. Now this might be an urban legend, but I think Chuck said, then we're turning out the carpet. Chuck was wanting to be infinitely adaptable to do whatever he can to reach an entire generation of young men and women. Are we trying to be that way? Because that was Paul's model. Now, now here's the question. Where did Paul get that model of ministry from? He got it from Jesus. And he said so in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through following. You remember that? He says, Jesus Christ, who being equal with God, did not count it something to be grasped, but laid it aside and came down in the form of a human, to be a human. And not just that, but to die. And not just that, but to die the death of a slave. Friends, we want to be the kind of people, the kind of church community that's not living for ourselves, but living for others. As a matter of fact, if you visit our church website, the first words you're going to see, big words, it says, we are for the glory of God and the good of His people. That's what we want to be. We want to be for the glory of God and then getting my needs net. No, 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 no. We want to be for the glory of God and then the good of others. You know why we have that there? Because when the the rabbis said to Jesus, what's the most important commands? Jesus says, well, here they are. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor like yourself. You want to be for the glory of God and the good of others. The great commandments are the basis of the great commission. Go into the world, tell them this message. Be about God's glory. Be about the good of His people. So Paul says, I want you to be like me because I'm attempting to be like Christ because I even modeled for you by becoming like you to make you like me who's trying to be like Christ. I hope you caught that. He says, be like me that way. So the question is, how? How do we be like you, Paul? And here he says the second verb, the answer to the question. Well, you have to be, understand that you're set free through the gospel. When you're set free from the gospel, you're not living up for other people's expectations or even this, this understanding of religious law or whatever it might be. You're free to be what God intended you. And so verse 21, let's get back to the book of Galatians. Verse 21, he says to you people, tell me who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to what it says? So here's what's happening, and this is brilliant. Paul is now changing his attention. He's talking about, I want you to be like I am, free in the gospel. In order for you to know that, you need to understand that and be rooted in the scriptures. The problem was the false teachers were using the scriptures to bring these Galatian Christians under, kind of back under the, the Torah, the oral law. And so what Paul does here is brilliant. He says, you need to know the scriptures. You guys who want to be under the law, you don't even know what it says. The false teacher's argument was this. You want to believe in Jesus? That's great. Fine. But if you want to inherit all the blessings of Abraham, you have to be his children. In order to do that, you need to obey the Torah, the law. And Paul's argument in verse 21 to 33 is this. When you believed in the message of the gospel by faith, that's exactly when you were being the children of Abraham. But now that you're trying to live under the law again, that's exactly when you're not being one of the children of Abraham. So it's a brilliant turning of the tables on him, and he's going to do it in three steps. Remember I talked about getting dialed in? Here we are. The three steps in verses 22 to 23, Paul's going to lay out the historical background. Verses 24 to 27, based on the historical background, he's going to give the allegorical argument. 
And then based on all that, in chapter, five, or chap, chapter 4, 28 to 30, he's giving the personal application. Okay, we are coming to probably the, the without doubt, the densest part of the book of Galatians. The, here's the, the reality. Uh, if we get the next slide up there, oh, that's a historical background. The reality, though, is in these 10 verses, Paul is drawing from a ton of information from the book of Genesis. And so I have all the passages that Paul is pulling for from in these 10 verses and building an argument on. The reason I have these there is so that you can write them down and read them later because there's a good chance that most of you are not familiar with these passages. We need to be, though. We need to understand Scripture so much so that when we read the New Testament and they're making reference to the Old Testament, we can understand and appreciate the arguments being put forth all the more. My friends, the literature is out that the American church is by and large biblically illiterate. Biblically illiterate. We don't know our own Scriptures. And what we need to do as a church community is if we're going to get strong, we need to be reading God's Word on a daily basis. And you say, well, wait a minute, that sounds like a, a lot like a law you're putting on us. It's, it's not a law. God's not going to love you more for reading the Bible every day. The benefit is you're going to realize how much God loves you by reading the Bible every day. See the difference there? In like manner, let me give an illustration. Um, Lori doesn't appreciate going to art galleries with me. Because I'm the kind of guy that looks at a painting and it's, it's just a can of soup or a boat on an ocean, whatever it might be. But to my wife, it is a stroke. It is decisions of pressure, of light, of color, even tensile strength on the canvas to hold the thing there, right? She sees so much more in the picture than I ever could because I just don't, I don't have an appreciation or a background in art. In the same way, when you read Scripture, when you read the New Testament, if you understand the Old Testament, when you read the New Testament, it is coming alive and so much more vibrant to you than if you don't know the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So, homework. Uh, yes, there is homework here. Read these passages of Scripture because this is what Paul is drawing on in these 10 verses. So, let's take a look at them one at a time. The historical background, verses 22 to 23. Paul writes, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So Paul goes back to Abraham because Abraham is the fountainhead of their faith, and the Jews felt that their acceptance with God came from the physical lineage to Abraham. The false teachers were teaching the same kinds of things. To be part of Abraham and inherit the blessings, you need to obey the law. So Paul is going like a master argument, uh, master debater. He's going to turn the tables. He goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham had two sons. You see, in Genesis, God had promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. But Abraham and Sarah were very old in life. And years and years went by and they still had no child. Finally, Sarai said to Abram, before their names changed, go into my handmaiden Hagar and have a son by her. Okay, to say nothing of the sinfulness of polygamy, that's just the way their culture worked. So Abram said, that's a great idea. Hagar's young, fertile, we'll have our son. Unfortunately, years later, Sarai herself ended up having the son that was promised to her. So now Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. 
And, and Paul is making a, a distinction here. There are two things that are very distinct and different about these two boys. Number one, obviously, they had two different mothers. Hagar had Ishmael, the son. He was born into slavery because his mother was a slave. Sarai had Isaac. He was born into freedom because his mother was free. But there's a second distinction between these two boys, and that was the circumstance or the way they were brought about. And I don't mean biologically. Biologically, it all worked the same. But the circumstances that brought about their birth were completely and radically different. For Ishmael, the NIV says, he was brought according to the flesh, the natural way. In other words, Hagar was a young, fertile woman, and she gave birth to Ishmael. But Isaac came about in a very unnatural way and an unexpected way because it was according to the promise of God. Sarah was over 90 years old, ladies, when she gave birth to her son. <laughs> you can appreciate that. There's no way that that's natural. It came about by a supernatural work of God. Hebrews 11.11 says it. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. So Paul recognizes that these two births are an allegory. Everyone, he says, is a slave by nature until the promise of God is fulfilled and they are set free. Look at verse 24. After he sets up the historical background, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So he's doing the hard work for us. He's saying, look, there's these two sons that Abraham has had, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, Isaac, the son of the free, and we can interpret these two as allegorically. They represent two covenants, he says. Now, if you're not familiar with the word covenant, we also use the word testament. What's the Bible divided by? The Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul's saying that these two sons represent the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, dominated by the law of Moses, and the New Covenant, the New Testament, dominated by the grace and work of Christ. But what Paul writes in verse 25, friends, is incendiary to these Jews and these false teachers. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Okay, that's, that's shocking right there. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. All right, what was Mount Sinai known for? Anybody? The law. The slave woman, the Gentile slave woman, Paul is saying, now Hagar is Mount Sinai. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem because she's in slavery. If you were Jewish and you just heard this, you are enraged. The slave woman of Abraham, you're associating with us? How dare you say we're in slavery? How could Paul say that? Here's why Paul could say that. By sleeping with Hagar, Abraham and Sarah were choosing to rely on their own capabilities. They were opting to work to get God's promises fulfilled. You see, in one sense you can say Abraham was acting in faith, but he was acting in faith in himself to be his own savior in the situation. And we do the same kinds of things all the time. And the results were disastrous. 
If you know anything about the biblical history, Ishmael became the son or the father of the Arab nations. And the Arabs and the Israelis have been at war ever since. Abraham and Sarah did not rely on God's grace through his supernatural action in history, but rather on their own ability. Friends, when we do not rest in God's promises and try to work, for his work and make things happen on our own, co-opting faith with what God says, the results are havoc and their disintegration relationally, psychologically, and spiritually. We saw that right here. And then Paul quotes this passage from Isaiah 51, there in verse 27, this phrase, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What's going on here? Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah, who is writing to the exiled Jews who had been taken from the land, and they thought, there's no way we can come back into the land that was promised to us. It's done. We're toast. And Isaiah is saying, oh, did you forget? Where did we all come from to begin with? We came, all of us, the multitude of us that are now in exile, came from a barren woman that should not have had one child. Do you think God can't give us back our land? God's going to give us back our land, just as He gave us existence from the barren woman. So Paul is quoting a prophecy to a barren people who thought they'd never come back into their land, and they eventually did, who in that prophecy he's quoting about a barren woman who never thought she could have a child and has a multitude of them. In other words, we're seeing the gospel pictures all over the place. When God looks down and He saw Hagar and He saw Sarai, one fertile and young, one barren and old, who did He choose to save the world through? The barren one, who eventually through her family line, there'd be another young woman who should have never expected to be pregnant, not because she was old, but because she was a virgin. And through her son would fulfill the promises that God had made to Abraham and Sarah so many centuries ago. You see, God is working His plan and doesn't require our efforts to make it happen. This is His promise. This is the way He works all the time. So He gives them the historical background. He gives them this allegorical interpretation. He says, no, when Abraham worked to serve, worked for something, it was a disaster. It was only when he and Sarah rested and trusted that God would do the thing that the promised son came. For those of you who are working to get God's approval, you're like Hagar, you're like Ishmael, you're still under slavery. But if you're willing to just trust and rest in Him, you're like Isaac, you're, you're the son of the free woman. And finally, the personal application in verses 28 to 31, it's interesting, he says, brothers like Isaac, you're children of the promise, but at the same time, the one who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. So Paul's saying you need to expect persecution when you proclaim a message of God's grace, which seems very counterintuitive. You would think people would love a message of free grace, but we don't, because the message of free grace goes against every human impulse to establish our own morality or righteousness, doesn't it? Because in order to receive grace, there first must be an admission that we cannot do it on our own. 
And we love to do it on our own, don't we? We love to create a system of kind of self-justification righteousness, whether it's conservative values or traditional religion or environmental living or progressive values. We all love to create a law by which we judge others and judge ourselves by. The point is, we all do it. But see, the gospel, you need to understand two things in order to embrace grace that we are much more sinful and wicked and depraved than we'd ever believed. But we're also more loved and cherished and valued than we ever dared imagined. That's the gospel of grace. And you need both elements of it. If you just believe that you're sinful and wicked, you'll just be crushed by despair. But if you only camp on the fact that you're loved and cherished, you won't actually see the need to love your Savior. The gospel of grace fights against the human impulse because we have to embrace both of those realities to get grace. That I am so sinful, I've never dared believe I could be that sinful, but I'm so loved, I'd never hoped that it could be a reality. That's the gospel. And secondly, uh, verse 30 says, put away this works righteous system. We need to move on, sorry, to the last final verb in our passage. I'm going to run a little late here. Paul commands the Galatians to stand firm in their faith. Honest pastoral admission coupled with clear biblical teaching always leads to lifestyle transformation. That's Paul's point. He says, be like I am. There's a subjective. Know the objective truth of God's Word. In light of these two, respond. And what's the response? What is the response Paul says? He says, just stand firm. Hold your ground. Don't be moved. Don't be misled. Don't be deceived. Don't be convinced that you're not a son or daughter of God's because you are so adopted because of what Christ had done. God had done all the work. All you need to do is stand in it. Look at this slide on the screens. God had done all the work. Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself for us to deliver us. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved us and gave Himself for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 4, 4, and 6, God gave us His Son and His Spirit to make us His sons and daughters. Paul says, the work's already been done. All you need to do is firmly and steadfastly stand firm in Him. Let me read to you the words of Jesus as we conclude. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. That sounds pretty simple, but it's not. We saw it in the wayward Galatians. We see this challenge in our own lives. My friends, as an anchor keeps a boat from drifting, as, a, as roots keep a tree from being, being planted, what is keeping your life, your walk with God rooted and planted? According to Paul in this passage, it's being surrounded by godly examples. It's knowing the Word of God. It's standing firm in your position as a son or daughter of Christ. 
It's no coincidence that Paul ends this right before he launches into what does it mean to live in community together in the gospel. It's not, that's, that's not a coincidence. We want to be in a church where there are godly examples to follow. We want, you want to be in a church where you can be a godly example to follow. You want to be in a church where God's Word is central and the gospel is primary. You want to be in a church that's not so obsessed with meeting your needs as much as obsessed with meeting your need in Christ. You want to be in a church so others can help you stand firm in your faith, and you want to be in a church so you can help others do the same. That is God's wisdom in so putting together a local body of believers that right in this room there are many examples for us to follow and emulate and imitate that God's Word in our community groups, in our homes, and on Sunday mornings, we are hearing the Word of God, and we are a community standing firm in our faith. And I pray by God's grace, we would continue to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the passage we have before us. Lord, thank You for the reality, constantly being reminded that we do not have to earn or work for Your approval, because that has been done. Father, it is true that we are saved by works, but it's just not our works that saved us. It's the work of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to rest in that. Help us to revel in that, that we are now those who have put their trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf, your sons and daughters. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.